Good morning. This is Tasha Blackburn, and this is Sunday School Shorthand. Uh, I'm going to wrap up uh, and detail for you some of what we talked about on November 1st, Sunday School class. And that was the beginning of Paul's letter of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to do a chapter, a session, and this will be chapter 1. So to begin, uh, I want to give a little bit of background. Uh, It might seem like, if you just looked at our Bibles and looked at the New Testament, that uh, Matthew would be the oldest uh, writing we have of the New Testament because it begins, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, right? And so maybe Matthew's the oldest. Well, it's not. Um, This letter to the Thessalonian church, Thessalonica church, Uh, is the oldest piece of Christian scripture we have. Uh, We believe that it was written about 51, the year 51. So remember your timeline there. Um, Jesus is killed, rises, uh, ascends to heaven. We think right around the year 33. So this is what, 18 years later? This is very uh, soon later uh, for us to have a writing. And so it is the earliest evidence we have of the existence of Christianity. It's, that's pretty neat. That's pretty neat, everybody. And I want you to listen as we go through the letter um, to some of the way uh, the earliest Christian thought is being worked out. They have no set of texts to rely on yet. There are no gospels written yet. They have... Uh, They don't have their leader anymore. He has ascended into heaven. They don't have a hierarchy. They don't have, they don't have anything. They have the oral tradition and they have the changed lives. Uh, And so listen for how they're working this out early on. A couple of things about the setting for the letter. We're told that the authors are Paul and Timothy and a man named Silvanus. And I just want to remind you, we, we sometimes think about Paul, uh, this like cowboy uh, apostle out there doing everything on his own. But no, you know, this is a team. Uh, this is a team of writers and a team of evangelists who have gotten to know the folks in Thessalonica. Also, this is a gathering um, of Christians in the city of Thessalonica. We believe they are Gentile Christians, which means they didn't. Uh, They were not Jewish before they converted. They were pagan before they converted. And we'll note that in a couple places why we think that. This is in Greece, what's now Greece. Um, And I want to let you know what's going on in their neighborhood at that time. At this point in 51, they have been under Roman imperial rule for over two centuries. Um, That's a long time. And even with that 200 plus years of imperialism upon them. They're still very much a Greek city. Um, They worship Greek gods, uh, but they also worship Egyptian gods and and a a really fun group named Phrygian gods, P-H-R-Y-G-I-A-N, Phrygian gods. Um, So they're a very religious place, actually. They um, are a seat of administration for Rome because they're so large. They're also a port city, um, they're also right along one of Rome's main highways. So this is a cosmopolitan place. This is a very diverse place, a very urban place. Um, 
and uh, a lot of gods are worshipped there. So that's the setting in which they live. That's the setting in which uh, Paul writes this letter. We believe he'd been there before and he'd been forced to leave. Uh, We don't quite know why. And he'd been hoping to come back, Uh, but he hasn't been able to come back. And he sent Timothy ahead. Timothy has come back with a really positive message of how things are going for the Christians in Thessalonica. And in response to that, um, we have this letter. In response to that positive word. I have to make a side note. You might hear birds or a little bit of traffic in the background. It's just such a nice day. I had to do this outside. So you might hear some ambient noise. Okay, so... I want to say one more thing before we get into the letter. Um, if you want to check this letter and check sort of, quote unquote, its correctness alongside Acts, the book of Acts, please don't do that because they don't match. <laughs> In Acts 17, uh, we read some about this same time period. Um, and it lines up in some places and it does not line up in other places. But guess what? We're not going to worry about that. And also for our cases, for our example here, this is in 51, and we believe the book of Acts was written uh, 85, 90 maybe. So we're definitely going to stick with the letter for right now that was written so much earlier. Okay, let's get in to this letter. I do want to remind you that it is a letter. It's not poetry. It's not history. It's not parables. And it's only half of a letter. Um, half of the communication. We don't have their letters to him, right? We only have this letter that he sends to them. So um, his letter would have been read aloud uh, when they gathered. And the way it must have spread, if you think it through, is that this letter became so important to this one gathered community that then when someone in that gathered community would travel for work or for you know, whatever reason, they would find another gathered Christian community and they would say, oh, you might want to know about this letter too. Uh, It's become really important to us. And that's how this grew. This one letter, um, you know, became part of our Bible, for goodness sakes. So we know why they read it. They read it because it was very important to them and it spoke to them in their time. The question is, why do we read it now? Well, we read it, and I hope you will find in this time, we read it for two reasons. We read it, one, because the gathered Christian community decided it was scripture. It was God's holy word and message to us. And we lean on (laughs) the communion of the saints, right? And number two, uh, it is scripture for us, and I hope this is what you'll find is that it still has uh, God's word to share with us today. We believe in a living word that is continuing to speak. And it, and it speaks through this letter. So let's find out more how. I want to read just the very first verse to you. The very first verse of the very first chapter of this first letter to the Thessalonians. It's just this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Okay, you might be thinking, really, that's what you're reading to me. And we would normally just pass right over this. But I want to point out a couple of 
of pretty interesting things here. Number one, what I already said, Paul isn't some lone wolf here. It's a team that's offering the letter. Number two, um, when you hear him say, when you read that he's written to the church um, of the Thessalonians or the church, yeah, the church of the Thessalonians, don't think First Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith, Arkansas, right? Don't think a building. Don't think a system of government. Don't think a plan or uh, elders or anything. They don't have anything yet. Think more the Greek word ekklesia, which is what it says here, actually, ekklesia, which means like the gathered ones, um, the association. Like this is a very loosely organized gathering of people who've heard about the gospel of Jesus and who want to know more. Um, so that's who the letter is to, is this sort of loose gathering of people whose lives have already been changed. Um, but they don't have any of that hierarchy yet. They don't have any of that history or tradition. Also, um, I want to point out that even in this very first uh, greeting, sort of, he says, I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians, but I'm writing in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not Paul's church. I know this is very basic stuff, but remember this is important. It's important for us today. It's not Paul's church. It's not Timothy's or Sylvanus's church. It's not the Thessalonians church. This is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ's church. And we're going to see here very quickly, it is God who's to be thanked for this church. Um, so, you know, even just for today, as you're thinking about your day, like, Whose life is this I'm living? It's not just mine. This is a life that was gifted to me by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then who's to be thanked then? Who's to be honored with this life? It really puts a whole new perspective on everything in our lives if we will uh, use the right point of view, right? Get our point of view right, and a lot will follow from that. So the last thing I want to point out to you about this what you would think couldn't be found in such a short uh, opening is this. He said, when he says grace to you and peace, um, I want you to hear the political overtones. Now, I know we've had a lot of politics, right? So maybe you don't want to hear, but this is so fascinating what Paul sets up here. I want you to hear just a couple of things that would have been going on in Thessalonica at the time. Um, Caesar Augustus, um, not only did people worship Greek and Egyptian and Phrygian gods, right? But there was also something called the emperor cult. Um, and that meant that the emperor was also seen as God. And the emperor demanded that. In fact, on Caesar Augustus's funeral inscription, like at his grave, uh, it says this here, and, and I love this about the equestrian order. But anyway, the Senate and equestrian order and Roman people all called me father of the country. I just like that the equestrian order comes in before the Roman people. But anyway, they call me father. And then we well know because we have them. We found them, the coins. And you could also find it in the pagan temples and in the emperor temples. 
um, that God, that the emperor was associated with God. Here's another inscription. The emperor, divine father among men, who bears the same name as his heavenly father. Oh my gosh. And then finally, one other piece. Famously, we have the Pax Romana, the Pax Romana, which was called, which is the Roman peace, right? And that was the idea that imperialism wasn't all bad. I know we have our thumb on you, but hey, we're keeping the peace in the world, guys. Um, that was the Pax Romana. And for the ones uh, from Rome, it seemed like a lot of fun. But for the ones who had their thumb, the Roman thumb pressed hard on them, uh, the Pax Romana didn't feel like any peace at all. But that was absolutely language that was going around and was very important at the time. It deemed, the Pax Romana deemed that Caesar was Lord, and uh, the Roman Senate even built an altar, uh, quote-unquote, to the peace of Augustus, to that Pax um, of, of Romana. And so listen again uh, when Paul says to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, I don't want to put all the weight on it, but I do want to put some weight on it. This is a political message, and Paul is saying, I'm going to have none of this political propaganda from Rome. There is a, an entire alternative life you can have, a different kind of peace I'm talking about that's actually peace, a different father that is not Augustus, uh, but is actually the God and father of us all. So, there's a lot going on just in that one greeting. Okay, let's look at the rest of the chapter real briefly. I'm going to read it to you. It's just eight verses. Paul writes, We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you, because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming." Just real quickly, I want to note that uh, here's one example right there at the end of why we believe, and we'll see it throughout the letter, of why we believe they were Gentile Christians and not Jewish Christians, is that line um, when he says, how you have turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Um, if they had been Jewish Christians, Paul never would have said that. Uh, Paul certainly believed that the Jewish people, of whom he was one, uh, had always been been serving the living and true God, but that there was this further message, you know, that Jesus was a further uh, message of the same living and true God. But if they'd been pagans, 
Yes, you turn to God from idols. So a couple of things about this. I want you to notice how much uh, Paul is doing this setup of thanksgiving. Now, this was very traditional in a letter was that you started with the greeting and then you st- and then the next step was to give thanks for various things, right? So there's some of it that's traditional, but Paul here goes over the top. In fact, uh, we can't even quite tell, like, do the thanksgivings and the thank yous end here where I just ended? Do they end somewhere in chapter two? Do they end somewhere in chapter three? Like, this is a letter of thanksgiving, which shows how pleased Paul is with this little fledgling group. Um, They've been so impressive. As he says, you know, he says, you have become an example to all the believers in this area. And, you know, we kind of don't even have a job to do anymore because you have done such a good job um, with it, with sharing the message. Uh, Also, I want to just tell you as a side note, because I think it's kind of funny. In every single letter we have from Paul, uh, he does begin with a thanksgiving, similar to this, but maybe less effusive. Except there is one letter uh, where he does not begin with thanksgiving, and that is the letter of the Gala- to the Galatians. And <laughs> nobody quite fully knows why he didn't begin with thanksgiving, because that was uh, actually sort of the formal way you were supposed to do it anyway. And the only guess we have is that he was so upset with that community um, that he couldn't think of a single thing to be thankful for. Um, That's pretty upset with the community, right? But anyway, that's a side note. But that's not true here in Thessalonians. He is so happy with them. And I want to point out uh, a couple of things he has here. He talks about this imitators, uh, this idea. Let's see, where does he say... He says in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, uh, so that you became an example to all the believers. And I just want to bring home the point. I know I've said it before, but we might hear imitators and go, Oh, imitators? You know, imitators? Do we want to ape someone? Do we want to mimic someone? Well, please don't take imitators that way. It's sort of the imitation is the highest form of, of compliment, right? I want to remind you. There's no sacred texts. There's no history of tradition. Um, there's no set leadership. There's nothing. There is uh, one person looking at another person's life and saying something is going on in your life that I want more of. You know, tell me. It's like when you, uh, women do this all the time. Sorry, men, if you don't do it. But it's like when women see a, another woman with a great haircut and they're like, where, who cuts your hair? You know, tell me more. (laughs) But it's that, but their whole lives, like what's going on in your life that, that has gotten you to this. I want to imitate that. And so Paul says, you've done that to us. And now you are the one that others imitate. Um, And I would argue that 2000 years later, with all the history, all the sacred texts, all the leadership, all the tradition, that this is still the way the gospel gets shared. It is one person looking at another person's life and saying, wow, what has gone on with you? Where can I get some of that? Right? You know, tell me more. Um, And it's funny because in church leadership world, uh, it is common knowledge that your greatest evangelists 
uh, to your congregation are your newest members or your newest visitors even. They are your greatest evangelists because they are in the active, um, they're in that really active phase of imitating, of, of following this new thing that they're finding. And they then are the ones that other people, you know, respond to and go, wait, something's going on in you. They're in that real active phase of imitating and then becoming the imitated. Um, the evangelized, become the evangelizers um, who then make the next evangelize. That's just how the good news works. It's just how the good news works. So uh, I want to end you this morning with that verse 10, that last verse of chapter 1. Um, well, it's right, right before it, actually. He gives these three verbs. Uh, he says, um, you've turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. So turn, serve, wait. He gives these three verbs, and he tells them, you know, that's sort of the life of faith, is to turn, serve, and wait. And uh, again, that could be one of the best messages for us. We turn, that's conversion language, we turn to this new way, we serve, um, the living God, not any fake emperor gods, right? And we wait. We wait with hope and expectation. Turn, serve, wait. Those are pretty good verbs to live our life by this day. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, we will have chapter two for you uh, this week of First Thessalonians. Talk again soon. Bye.